Well, we are continuing a series called Death and Life, which is kind of a weird way to invert those words, right? Usually we'll say, well, this is a life and death situation, but we inverted them because what we see again and again, both in the narratives and in the teaching of Jesus in John chapters 11 and 12, is we see people moving from death to life. We see people realizing as they understand who Jesus is and as they place their faith in him, they are moving into this idea, this reality of spiritual life, acknowledging that he is the Messiah. Those, however, who continue to refuse that Jesus is who he's presenting himself to be move further and further away from life into a deeper spiritual death. And so we'll see that contrasted today as well. And today's passage is literally all about life and death. And so this is kind of where we're going. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the people doing overt things to say, he's the one. This is Messiah. This is who we've been literally waiting for, for generations. And Jesus not telling them they were wrong accepting this reality, accepting this title of Messiah, riding in on a donkey just like prophecies had foretold. And at the very end of that passage, what we saw last week is we saw these Pharisees just kind of out of their minds frustrated. If we don't do something, we gotta stop him because the whole world is going out to him. And that's exactly where we pick it up today, where the whole world is going out to him. Jesus is going to have a profound conversation with Gentiles who come to Jerusalem for Passover, and they want to come talk to Jesus. They want to know who he is, and that's who we're going to interface with today and what Jesus tells them. So if you have a Bible, if you want to make your way to John chapter 12, I'd love for you to join us in that today. If you have notes you either got in the back or if you want to open up our app and go to resources, sermon notes, and find today's date, then you can track with us. And I'm excited to unpack this passage that was not only important 2,000 years ago for this group of, of interested seekers, but it's really important for us today. Here's our now what statement, what we want to walk out today, putting into motion in our lives. In light of all who Jesus is and all that he's promised, choose to renounce your rights to your life. In light of all of who Jesus is and all that he's promised, choose to renounce your rights to your life. Number one in our notes, because Jesus came to save the world, people from all nations wanted to see him. Because people, Jesus came to make himself available, not just to the Jewish people, but to, the save, to be the savior of the world, people from all nations wanted to see him. We're in John chapter 12. We pick it up today in verse 20. It reads like this. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. That festival is Passover. We've seen that already in this chapter. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. This is kind of an interesting beginning to this passage that we'll look at today. Before we get even into Jesus' teaching, we're setting a context. And like we said, Jesus has just made his way into the city. People are in mass. They would say that calculations at the turn, at, at the beginning of, um, in the first century, people in Jerusalem would have been by the millions. A couple of million would have come into the city. It's just jam-packed to celebrate this festival called Passover. 
And so they're there the week of, leading up five days in advance. They're there and they're packing out this city. Jesus has just been acclaimed. People have given him this distinction. This is the one. This is the king of Israel. As he, walk, he rides into town. And so along with this whole mass of people who are coming out in throngs to saying, we've been looking for him for, for ever since Genesis 3, millennia. And now he's finally come in our lifetime. And of that, the first people on the back side of this that we get to learn about and have an interaction with are actually non-Jews, people who are not of the Jewish people. And, and we don't know exactly their motivation. All we know is that they were Greeks, and Greeks could have even been a sense of not necessarily from Greece, but from the outside, outlying areas, and they were definitely Gentile. And as they come, they, they want to have this conversation with Jesus. Now, when we think about them, they could have been in Jerusalem for a host of reasons. It could have been to the extent that they were what, what we've kind of called proselytes, people who would go through all kinds of rituals, including baptism, to be brought into the community, the people of Israel. That could have been the degree of their interest in knowing Yahweh and following him and coming and celebrating a pilgrimage feast like Passover. They could have also just been people who were curious and some of you, some of you know people who've gone to de various destinations all over the world and come to a city when a huge religious celebration's going on, of which they don't really have any interest. They're just curious to see how people engage in religious ceremony. So we're really not told the degree of which these, these non-Jews are interested in Yahweh and interested in his Messiah. But we do know this, they're interested in pursuing a conversation. They are the best understanding of what we call seekers. I want to know him. I want to talk to him. That's what that Greek verb means. I want to see. I want to stare at. I want to spend some time getting to know what all the hoopla is all about. And this Jesus is the one that they want to have audience with. What's curious to me is when we see this idea, we know that the Gentiles, the nations, the, the world, the peoples... We're always in the mind and the heart of God. If you come in today thinking that Jesus was sent only to the house of Israel and everyone else is kind of an afterthought, then what you haven't done is taken time to read in the former covenant. We're all over the place, especially in the book of Isaiah. The nations were always in the heart and the mind of God. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, talking about his servant he was going to send, otherwise known as his Messiah. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I'll keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, the people of Israel. But watch, and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And then so overtly, just seven chapters later in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, Yahweh talks about, again, his servant, it's too small a thing. It's too small, it's too myopic for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. It's too small a thing for me to send you to one people. Look at next. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach, huh, that's curious, that's the name of a movie this week, to the ends of the earth. 
always in the heart and the mind of God. And so these Gentile seekers, they simply are looking for the light that was promised to them. I want to see him. I want to interact with him. I want to understand all of this stuff that's happened and what they're calling him. I want audience. It's interesting. John notes that they approach Philip. And he says he reminds us that Philip is from the house of fish. That's literally what Bethsaida means, house of fish. And he reminds us too that so are um, Andrew and Peter. And we don't really know why exactly Philip. One thing we probably could guess is that Philip didn't look like other people from Jerusalem. He didn't look like maybe typical, a typical Jewish person being from up north in Galilee. And there was something, some reason why they chose him. They said, we'd love to see, we'd love to interact with this Jesus. Philip goes and finds Andrew. We're not told why. But Andrew doesn't make much time to just simply go, hey, this is a plan, let's go tell Jesus. This is the third time in John's gospel where Andrew has been bringing people to Jesus. Chapter one, Simon, right? Before he was named Peter, Simon, my brother, you've got to come and see. We have found him. We've, I've interacted today. I've spent the day with Jesus, the Messiah. Chapter six, crowds, literally thousands are hungry. And Jesus says, what food do we have? Andrew goes, well, we got this kid. He's got a lunch. He brings him to Jesus. Chapter 12, interested seekers want to have audience with Jesus. Here, come over here. This is where he's at. What I love about Andrew is biblical character. We don't ever read about Andrew having ongoing debates with people. We don't read about Andrew having amazing uh, abilities to disseminate truth. What we see about Andrew is someone who knew something of Jesus, and when he interacted with people who wanted to know him or who needed to know about him, he would just simply bring them to Jesus. That Andrew, three times, John is very overt. The other gospels don't include these narratives. But three times, Andrew is bringing people, come and see. Just, just come and see Jesus. That'll be enough. In your notes, he is a great figure for us at Trinity Church as we are growing to be a people who are more and more rooted in reaching. Andrew's a great example of someone who simply introduces people to Jesus. That's kind of what we know him for from John's gospel. Oh, that's the disciple who just keeps introducing people to Jesus. And as we long to be a people who not only know, love, and, and are preoccupied with Jesus, we long to make him known. And some of us sometimes get so in our head, Todd, I've not been to seminary. Todd, I don't have sharp arguments. Todd, I don't know what I would say if they asked. Don't worry about that, because Andrew didn't. Instead, what you know of Jesus, continue to take opportunity to introduce other people to him. And the great news is, then just let Jesus do what Jesus does. And he does amazing things in lives. Our lives are testimony of that. Number two in our notes today, Jesus's final hour, or hour, finally arrived in the form of his productive death. Jesus's hour finally arrived in the form of his productive death. We're in John 12, verse 23. Jesus replied, and this is when now these, these men, these people, we don't even know if they're all men, but this group of Gentiles have audience with Jesus. This is what he tells them. 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Eight times in John's gospel, Jesus is going to talk about his hour. As we have been working our way through this book, we've come against it many times. Jesus has consistently said, you don't understand, it's not my hour, it's not my time. Now, here we are, John chapter 12, Jesus has made his way into the city, and interestingly enough, it's in the audience of Greeks where he's teaching and he says, now, now is the time. This is what this has all been building up to, reasons strategically why I stayed out of Jerusalem at times, other reasons why when I healed someone, I told them don't talk to anyone about this. This is now, it's all culminated because this is the time. This is the hour. So everything has been building up to this crescendo. And this hour is going to result in Jesus being glorified. Glorified. We said these are church words that we often use and we keep perpetuating, but we really don't know what they mean. But we think, I'm going to look stupid if I ask, what does that word mean? So we just keep saying them. And I want to help us with that because I think that's silly. And I want to break down those barriers where we feel awkward to even ask. Glorify has that sense. We'll look at it in two ways. Number one, where the light is shown upon someone. Where, where this focal point becomes who is in the light. Look in your notes. The Greek verb translated as glorified means to ascribe weight by recognizing real substance or value. To ascribe weight. So there, and that kind of stems from the, the Hebrew word that has a sense of weightiness. Weightiness, this focal point upon the idea that this person has worth or value because they have a weightiness about them. And so this is this concept. Jesus is going to be shown for who he is. The light's going to put, be put upon him because he is worthy of having the light put upon him. Like nobody who's come before and nobody who's come since. So he is rightly going to have the light shine upon him, but he's going to do that through death. Not through being an amazing order on huge stages. Not through doing supernatural miracles that blow minds. The light is going to be shown upon him, and he's going to be demonstrated as worthy of having great value because he's going to give his life away. Paul, he takes the same idea about how what seems like it wouldn't make sense, it seems counterintuitive that the way that Jesus is ultimately exalted is through death, ultimately exalted through servanthood. These seems counterintuitive to us because we think about things like power and status. This is where the mind of the Jewish religious leaders were. That's where it's at, power, status. Jesus says, no, it's through servanthood and death that exaltation comes. And Paul, in his letter to the Philippian church, he not only says this was Jesus's attitude, but he tells us to have the same. Philippians 2.5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Which was what? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, other translations, he didn't hold on to it. He didn't grasp it. 
but he let it go. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. The same thing that this passage is talking about, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, now here, here comes this glorified concept. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love the way Dr. King put it, a real succinct way of saying it. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. It always goes that way, and Jesus is obviously the great example. He says, I am about to be glorified. I am about to be exalted, but it's not from where I stand with you today to there. It's actually to the grave and ultimately to there. Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown we wear. So Jesus is forecasting what's about to happen just days from now. This is what his kingdom looks like. This upside down kingdom that is just so hard for us to put our head around because our natural human selves just think almost the opposite in every way. Then Jesus goes on to say though that his death though will not be terminal. It won't be like a cul-de-sac. Some of us live on cul-de-sacs and you've chosen that for a great reason. There's not a lot of traffic. It doesn't go back and forth all the time. It's quiet, it's wonderful. I love that you live in a cul-de-sac. There's no problem with that. Jesus is saying, my life though, when I give it, is not gonna be one and done. It's not terminal, which is actually the word we use for death. <laughs> no, no, Todd, death is terminal. That's the whole point. Jesus says, no, I'm actually, my life is like planting a seed in the ground. And that seed has to be planted in order for it to spring to life in other ways. This death, this kernel of wheat will produce a host of other seeds, which in turn can produce a host more. Now, first off, you are amazed. How are they shrinking wheat nowadays? That's amazing. I've seen little dwarf ponies and all that stuff. What are they doing to wheat? I don't know, but I found this at the store this week. So you and I, we don't live in an agrarian culture. Some of you are like, seriously, that's what wheat looks like? <laughs> we don't even know. The, Jesus is saying there's all these kernels, okay, right on the edge, and, and one of these kernels comes off, and, and even when wheat is being harvested, right, it's being cut at the bottom later on to be shaken out, and it's those kernels that we use to bake bread and do all these other things that people who have gluten allergies just hate. But, but this is what wheat is. But one of these kernels, even when it's getting harvested, kernels fall off along the way. Kernels that just stay on top of the ground Interestingly enough, when Jesus uses another parable, the parable of the sower and the seeds, that's the seed that comes and gets snatched away by the birds. It becomes lunch for birds, not reproductive in the ground where it actually ultimately with the goal of reproducing itself 10, 30, 100 fold. 
So wheat, Jesus is just using a very simple, organic idea that everyone listening would understand. Even though we don't live in an agrarian society, even though none of us are biologists, well, there's probably actually a few of us here. Most of us are not. We get it. We get that a seed sitting outside, just sitting on top of something, sitting on your kitchen table, is never going to produce a plant that ultimately would produce more seed. Now, I told you, to your surprise, that I'm not a biologist. I was looking this week. Seeds don't actually die when they're in the ground. Jesus is using a metaphor. Because everything that a seed has, it has before it goes in the ground. What changes is its environment. It's in the right place with soil. It's in the right place with moisture. It's in the right place, ultimately, with sunlight. <clears throat> that it can produce another uh, plant that in turn is going to produce a ton more seed. And this perpetual way that God has designed for the organic world to operate is a beautiful example of what his life is like. If I would say, Father, I'm going to be obedient to you even to death, my body, as it were, gets planted gets buried, and in that there's a way that ultimately that is going to spring to life for so many more. The only way, Matt talked about it earlier today, the only way that we can be right with our creator is through what his savior does for us at the cross and the empty tomb. There's no hope aside from that. There is pure hopelessness. And Jesus is the one who goes. <clears throat> Jesus is the only one who could have been that sacrifice, that sinless life offered to provide atonement for our sins. And Jesus doesn't falter. Jesus doesn't turn aside. Jesus says, this is why I came. This is my hour. What's powerful for me is to not only understand this idea, this, this metaphor that Jesus is using about how his life is gonna be planted ultimately to give life to so many more. But what's wild is Paul uses literally the same metaphor to talk about our bodies. His followers, Jesus' followers, what it's like when our bodies, quote, get planted 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, and a whole chapter devoted to the resurrection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? They have questions. What's it going to be like? What happens when we die? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So what you're looking for, when you plant a seed, there's no way for that plant to happen until you bury the seed first. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. It almost makes me wonder, was Paul just reading over this gospel story from John 12 and gets inspired to write 1 Corinthians 15? It's the exact same concept. Okay, he goes on to say, um, when you sow, you do not plant a body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a weed of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. 
Look down, verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, flesh and blood, I'm not sentimental. These skin and bones are just a rental. My favorite line ever. This body that's sown um, is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, flesh and bones, but it's going to be raised spiritual body. Jesus' initial productive death, his death on a cross, his resurrection from the tomb, makes a way for his followers' bodies to be sown and sown in ways that are anything but lasting. Look at the describers. Uh, perishable, in and of itself, means that. Sown in dishonor, in weakness, and natural. That's the way these bodies get planted into the ground, but one day we'll be raised anew. And the new describers are imperishable, in glory, in power, spiritual. As Michael was sharing today during our hosting segment, about so many of us, probably at what is proportionally just an overly abundant number of us have lost people close to us in the last 12 months. And within that, for the people that have moved from this life to the next, for those that love Jesus and were followers of him, this passage, not just from John 12, but 1 Corinthians 15, it's meant to give you a sense of comfort. I write on most every type of, of condolence card, sympathy card. I'm reminding myself, sometimes I don't write it because it doesn't need to be said, but I'm reminding myself, this person that I know you're grieving, if they're in Christ, they've never been better off. So we don't grieve for their current situation, we grieve for our loss. We grieve for the vacuum that we experience of them not being here with us, but we don't grieve for what they're experiencing because their body's being raised up in all those descriptors, imperishable, spiritual, in glory, in power. That can bring incredible comfort in the midst of great loss. I would just put that out to us today as we're walking through that so many of us. Let that be exactly what it was intended to do. Finally today, number three, your life is eternally lost or found based on whether you renounce your hold on it here. Your life is eternally lost or found based on whether you renounce your hold on it here. What do I mean? John 12, 25, anyone, Jesus continuing, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This last passage really requires some clarification and really requires getting out of the world of theory to getting to the world of practical. So I want to unpack it quickly as we close today. The illustration of the kernel of wheat underscores what Jesus is about to do, but he doesn't leave it there. It's what he's calling his people, his followers, to do as well. So he says, I'm doing this for you as an example. I'm going first, but you're going to follow. 
And if Jesus, our leader, lived in this manner, so we as his followers, that's what the definition of follower means, to follow in the footsteps of the one who's leading. So the expectation is that we would do the same. But it's really important this morning that we define this word we're reading in our English Bibles, define the word hate. What does it mean to hate your life? I know plenty of people who hate their lives because of all the difficult circumstances they're going through in a moment. I hate my life. Totally get that, but that's not what this is talking about. I know plenty of other people who would say, I love my life because of the degree of circumstances that are going on right now. And that's not what this passage is talking about. So what does that mean? What is Jesus saying when the one who loves his life is gonna lose it? The one who hates their life is going to save it. What, what does that possibly mean? In your notes, what's essential is that Jesus is at the center. What's essential is that Jesus is at the center of our lives. And since no one can take him away from us, we hold fast to him in this life, knowing that we will continue to forever. Jesus is the hinge of why you hate or love your life in this world. It's all about what is in the middle of why you're making that decision or why you have that attitude. Let's look at it. This Greek word, hate, look in your notes. It's the word miseo, and it means to detest. And watch this. It's on a comparative basis. So meaning when we see this word in the New Testament, it's always setting up a comparison. Let, read on. It means to denounce or to love someone or something less than someone else. Look at the next line. To renounce one choice in favor of another. This word gets lost on us a little bit in our English language. This is a comparison word. You might say, I just hate seafood. I'd feel so badly for you too because I love it so much. <laughs> but you're not saying that in comparison to anything else. I just hate seafood. In this Greek vernacular, you would have to say, I hate seafood in comparison to lasagna, which I still don't understand that, why you would, but that's fine, that's you. <laughs> but, th but this word is a comparative word. It's never in a vacuum. It's, it's saying in relation, it's renouncing one choice in light of another. So it's really important when we see that word, what do we mean when we see the Bible saying to hate your life? Carson sees it so well related to what it means to love one's life. Look at what he says. The person who loves his life will lose it. Watch this. It could not be otherwise. There's no other way around that. For to love one's life is, fundam is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty, of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the apogee of one's perception and therefore an idolatrous focus on self, which is the heart of all sin. Such a person loses his life, AKA or otherwise, for example, causes his own perdition. Man, Carson just sums that up so well. When I was doing study this week, I thought that's just a succinct way of saying that's what it means. If you love your life in this world, that's why you're gonna lose it because you elevate self. I love my control over my life, my right to my life, more than surrendering it to Jesus. And as a result, I will lose it. That's exactly what Carson is saying. 
my study Bible looking at this passage said it in a lot more. Carson uses wonderful vernacular, but let's bring it down. Here's, here's an easy way for people like me to understand. Love one's life means delights in one's life in this world more than in God. To love one's life means I delight in my life in this world. And by the way, we live in Southern California in the year 2021. Besides the challenges that we face in so many ways, there is a lot to love. But look at the converse. Hates one life, one's life, means thinks so little of one's life, watch, and so much of God. It's not just like I think so little of my life, because some of us would go, we know people all around the world who live in impoverished areas. They must hate their life. They think so little of their life and so much of God that one is willing to sacrifice it all for him. I came across a wonderful devotional this week in my study from John Piper. Listen how he unpacks this passage in your notes. Jesus is not just saying, if things go bad, don't fret, since you've died with me anyway. Like kind of as a natural, well, that's your fallback. He is saying, choose to die with me. Choose to hate your life in this world the way I have chosen the cross. Later on, he calls us to choose the cross. People only did one thing on a cross. They died on it. I, I'm in no way knocking the way that we use crosses and jewelry and different iconic things. But man, when you have a wonderful piece of metal around your neck, you're forgetting that's not an ornament. That's an electric chair. That's what happened on crosses. People died on them. Take up your cross. It means like a grain of wheat, fall into the ground and die. Choose it. That's what this passage is saying. Willfully choose. God, what the life you're inviting me into, the life that will last forever, the life that follows the example of Jesus, that's the better life, and that's the one I choose. He goes on to give a wonderful litmus test. We've still stayed in the world of the theoretical. Let's make it uber practical. In Piper's um, devotional, he goes on to say this. In other words, it, does, it just doesn't matter much what happens to your life in this world. Now look at the examples. If men speak well of you, it doesn't matter much. If they hate you, it doesn't matter much. If you have a lot of things, it doesn't matter much. If you have little, it doesn't matter much. If you are persecuted or lied about, it doesn't matter much. If you are famous or unheard of, it doesn't matter much. If you have died with Christ, these things just don't matter much. That's where the rubber meets the road in this passage. That's the practical application. The idea that God in this life, I'm gonna experience some amazing highs, all that a mortal world can offer. And at other times in my life, I'm gonna experience excessive lows. Maybe lows that others around me have never experienced. No matter how high the highs, no matter how low the lows, God, I choose to say, in light of Jesus and in light of eternity, it doesn't matter much. 
this has become our problem. Is that in this recent, recent season, everything matters this much. And that's why this passage gets incredibly practical for us. That's why this passage is so important. And the reality is, is what did, Paul, what did Jesus say? Is that those who choose to kind of, you know, white knuckle, hold on to their life in this life, they're going to lose it. Those who surrender it are going to end up keeping it. And, and what does that play out to be? It plays out that there is an eternal reality for all of us either those who will be separated from God forever or those who will be with him forever. Matthew says as much, quoting Jesus in this story. It's not even really a parable. It's a story of the sheep and the goats being separated by God. Matthew 25, then the unrighteous will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, there might be some this morning who would say, man, Todd, that's just hard for me to hear. I don't even know if I want to talk about that. I don't know if I want to talk about the fact that there is a reality of two different places, not three, not seven, not 12, two different places where all humanity will spend eternity, a real heaven, a real hell. I don't know if I want to talk about that today. But can I just tell you this? I would not be a good pastor if I kept from speaking about this. I would not be giving truth in the way that truth needs to be understood and the way that truth needs to shake us sometimes. It was powerful this last week at HSM, our high school ministry that meets on Tuesday nights. One of our students, a senior, Caleb, who attends Rev High School, Caleb got up and just so articulately and powerfully shared his story growing up in a Christian home and sharing that in his freshman year, just began to wander away from Christian friends, Christian influence, just Jesus in general. And, and over the course of the rest of that freshman year, all his sophomore year, all his junior year, literally was living like hell. And then at the end of his junior year, in that summer before his senior year, God just started prompting these questions in his mind. What does happen after we die? Where will I go? What does that mean if I'm living apart from Christ? And it's what God used to get his attention. And he's boldly standing in front of other high school students saying, this is what I, I put my faith in Jesus then. I've only been a Christian, he would say, for the last three or four months. But I'm, I'm not just in this moment sharing in front of you, but when you walk the life, you live the life and watch Caleb, he's absolutely living out this truth. So, so we sit there and we go, that's what that looks like. The reason I have to talk about it is I've asked you before, how many of you, when you understood the reality of a real place called hell, it was significant in your understanding of your need for a savior. The majority of your hands have gone up. How could I keep that from us and other people? And here's the wonderful news. Apart from what Jesus does at the cross, that's just the way it goes. But it's because Jesus chooses to plant his life in the ground and create a way for atonement that seeds are going to be sown and, and lives are going to be changed for eternity. That's why we celebrate. Because Jesus broke the cycle of sin and death. 
And he creates for us this opportunity to be right with him forever. But I want to finish today with some very practical thoughts for those of us who have put our faith in Christ. For those of us who do anticipate to be raised one day with those bodies we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, how do I keep hating my life? Not just a once and for all decision daily. How do I keep hating my life in this world? Piper's comments in his devotional really connected with me. It just doesn't matter much. Because as I read that litmus test list, there were some things that really connected with me. And I thought, but no, that matters a bunch to me if that happens. And it made me ask some great questions. Could it be that we've forgotten in this past season, this past year and a half, with so many polarizing issues that have plagued our society and even our own church family, that we've made so many insignificant things matter so much that instead of hating our lives in this world, we're clinging to them, to our opinions, to our values, to these convictions that often don't have the weight of Scripture to tell us this does matter much. And when someone is opposing my view or even criticizing mine, all of a sudden it matters a whole lot. It matters because my feelings get hurt. It matters because you're on the other side. It matters to the point that if I, don't dis- if I disagree with you and there's no resolution, I'm just going to do what the rest of our culture does. I'm going to cancel you. Not so for Jesus' people. There is a direct application of hating your life in this world and how highly you're valuing your political views, your societal views, your methodology views when it comes to treating others with anything less than the love that Jesus says we ought to share towards one another. If men speak well of you, it doesn't matter much. If they hate you, it doesn't matter much. If you are persecuted or lied about, it doesn't matter much. Dying to self means that I'm not consumed by being right, being heard, or insist on my way. That's the most succinct way I can put it from what I've been processing in my own life. And can I say this? Lest you feel that there is a lot of finger pointing right now, I've been looking in the mirror all week. Man, if there's someone who's needed to realize the implications of this passage in this last season, he's standing right in front of you. There have been times when I've looked at Piper's list. I've never looked at it till this week, but I look at those things. And when it's related to my character and the way that people feel about me, it's mattered everything. I was incredibly convicted this week. Not just for how much things have mattered, but how in turn I haven't responded in love like I need to. And that's my commitment moving forward. That's what it looks like to hate my life in this world is to not only say, hey, I understand if we disagree, but that's not enough to keep me from loving you. And my hope is, as a church family, that we will keep migrating towards this idea because that's what it looks like. When we, as a church family, live that way, watch out. Satan's going to be afraid. And our community is going to take note in a world where everyone's splintering over everything. In light of all who Jesus is and all that he's promised, choose to renounce your rights to your life.
Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today with a passage that is so profound, so rich, not just in theory, not just in, in huge eternal ideas, but God, so powerful for everyday living. God, there's a lot about our lives that matters much to us that simply in light of Jesus and in light of eternity really doesn't help us stop inverting value. Help us stop seeing it disproportionate to what it is. Help us to take these words of Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to love you more, follow you more closely than anything else in my life. Making that comparative choice, I renounce one decision over another. God, this week in our lives, help us keep being aware throughout the week. What do we need to renounce that we've got our hands tightly grasping that really doesn't matter? If you're here today and you have never responded to this amazing invitation of the gospel, that Jesus planted his life in the ground so that you could be redeemed, you could be, your sins could be atoned, then I have great news. If this reality we talked about today of the divide of an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, if that has you rethinking things, can I tell you, that wasn't because I had something fancy to say. It was because the Spirit of God is at work in your life. So today, A, would you admit? Would you admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior? Would you, B, believe that Jesus is the only Savior available? And would you, C, choose? Choose to put your weight, your confidence, your trust in what he has done, not in what you can do to somehow religiously be good enough for God, but simply say, Jesus, you are enough, and I want to live my life following your example. Father, this week, do a work in us. Help us take your word with a seriousness and an application that brings growth and change. We love you. Thank you for the gift of your word today that we can understand what following Jesus looks like even more. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.